You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Patricia Corey is a well-known clairvoyant. She joins us this portion of our program to talk about the whales, the dolphins, and what they have to say. Before we leave you, Messages from the Great Whales and the Dolphin Beings, the title of her North Atlantic 2011 release, tells us that there are wisdom teachings that they want to share. Before the Industrial Age began encroaching on the waters, it's possible by calculation to understand that a whale on one side of the planet could communicate with another by sending signals that would arrive in seven minutes, the speed at which some scientists say our own thoughts travel across the world, while others say it is near instantaneous when it comes to intentional thought. Today, however, we all have heard of the terrible stories of whales beaching themselves. Why? Our guest this hour attempts to answer that puzzle through her own encounters and communication with these beautiful species. Thank you for joining us, Patricia. Thank you, Dr. Zoe. Tell us a little bit about your own background in terms of how you became a clairvoyant. Well, I'm not sure you really become one. I, 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 I was a clairvoyant child, and I was supported by a mother who encouraged that vision and supported me rather than trying to uh, convince me that I wasn't seeing things. And all through my life, this, let's call it ability, gift, uh, simply got stronger and stronger, and there are key moments in any given lifetime where events occur that sort of uh, heighten that intuition and that guidance and that capacity. There have been many, and one of the great ones was in a crop circle in 1996 called the Julia Set, where I had kind of a uh, major tune-up, if you'll call it, and began to uh, work with in consciousness on another dimension, uh, they call themselves the Syrian High Council, and from there I have really channeled very many books, about, I think, ten altogether now, and the last one being the work that I'm doing directly with the whales and dolphins. Can you describe to our audience just a little bit about how you do the work that you do? I mean, I interview lots of mediums, psychics, intuitives over the last 30 years, and I don't think that we've always done a good enough job of helping somebody who maybe hasn't experienced that capacity but has an interest, what it's like. I'm glad you asked that question because we realize, of course, that so many people are still in the skepticism zone that people that have this ability are cons or uh, that it's their imagination. And so I would like to talk about that, and that is... We are all capable of psychic uh, vision and psychic sense. We look at the animals. The animals have that capacity, and we are animals, if you will. So we have that innate ability to perceive beyond what we believe is the realm of consciousness, that being the sensate reality. Um, the thing is that I believe that at this moment, the veils are going down. There's a thinning of between the dimensions. And more and more people are recognizing that they're getting information from other dimensions. So we can call this mediumship, channeling, uh, sensitivity, whatever you want to call it. I really do believe that we are moving into a, a period of mediumship where we're understanding that we're multidimensional beings. We have access to other information beyond what we believe is reality and that we're all entitled and potentially going to perceive these things 
in this time of great shift on the planet. So it's a very exciting time, and more and more of us are experiencing this this ability. I think that's very true. And when I talk with um, a woman named Gay Bradshaw who works on transspecies psychology, we have often talked about transspecies telepathy, which I experience and which you experience and which thousands of people and the shamans and the first peoples and anybody who ever gets quiet and has reverence comes into rapport with life, all life. So would you say that you are a telepath? Do you receive the information through whole connection or do you get stories? Do you get images? How do you work? I get a little bit of everything. It's quite an amazing journey. I am a clairvoyant uh, clairvoyant, I'm a clairaudient, so I'm hearing things. And then, of course, I have a, a very heightened sense of intuition, just that how do you describe intuition as anything more than just a knowing? Mm-hmm. But in these last years, I do hear very specific information coming through to me, and I want to emphasize that it's very important for people to understand that you must clear. When you do this work, you need to be sure that you've cleared and created sacred space because there's also an astral layer of consciousness where astral beings are flittering about, and you want to be sure that if you are hearing, you're hearing higher beings mm-hmm. and not some layer of mm, mental images, mental um, forms, thought forms that are floating around in the ethers. Right, that, that may not have our best interests, but might be the interests of somebody who's deceased. I used to joke with people, just because somebody's dead doesn't make them a saint, you know? So true. So, so you know, there are different, obviously, just as there are on Earth, different levels of capacity and different qualities of intellect and, and love. So tell us about the day that this encounter happened. You were in Jordan. It was November. The year was 2008. Yes. I was teaching a workshop there. And it was not an exactly easy thing to do because, of course, I was coming up against the cultural biases of that uh, culture and how they might feel about uh, what I was teaching, which is uh, sort of outside the parameters of the religion and and the cultural bias. So there I was uh, talking about DNA activation and uh, multidimensional reality, etc. And I suddenly started to hear whales and dolphins imploring uh, me, let's say, to help them. And I saw a vision of a beaching of whales and dolphins together. And they were begging for help. Please help us, please help us before we leave you. That's how the book was given the title. Now, I was on stage in front of, not a stage, but I was in front of a group of about 100 people and had this horrific, really horrific experience of hearing this and seeing this, suffering of these pods who were actually committing suicide. They were letting me know they were leaving. Help us before we leave you. Help us before we leave you. And I was catapulted out into this scene uh, underwater. It was very, very traumatic. I ran out of the room and never have done anything like that before and had to be just comforted until I could cope with the information. This was the first of the contact from the whales and dolphins, other than just loving them and, like you, feeling a... a, I think so many people now really feel a connection with the cetacean nation. But that was very, very, very traumatic. And it continued to happen because every month or so I would have another 
very traumatic encounter with them, again with the imploring, please help us before we leave you. And this happened several times before the actual communications began to come uh, as our part of the book. or as our ma- The book has a number of aspects to it. There's Some of it is written by me and describes some of my own experience working and living, uh, swimming with them and getting close to them. Uh, but there are messages directly from the earth whales and there are di- messages from ascended whales. I'm really glad your audience is... <laughs> ready to embrace this kind of information. I don't know that the audience embraces it, but they've certainly been versed in it for 30 years. So we have to assume there that go. there are some people for whom this makes a lot of sense, and there are others who might listen because they're curious, and others who just don't believe in any of it, and they find it highly entertaining when people like us start talking about the things that we experience and believe. Through. I would like to say something about that, and that yes. is... By all means, I understand that it is really until you have the experience, it is very hard to just simply automatically embrace someone else's, and I honor that. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, but what I what I do ask of people is to please also honor my experience, and hopefully they can at least hear it without uh, immediately rejecting it. Because the truth is, all living beings on this planet interact, and it won't be long, in my opinion, before the animals teach us a lot more about how to be human and connect back in with the rest of the animal kingdom. It's, you know, what your book interests me because I had an experience. I haven't really talked about this publicly, but I might as well in this forum just add it in. Before the terrible earthquake and tsunami in Japan, I heard animals, monkeys, snakes, dogs, everything screaming in my ears for like two weeks. And this was after I was, every 10 years, I've sort of added a new practice into my life and really a new career and I've been doing animal communication my whole life and was told that that's what I'd be doing this decade so I had just started this decade when this screaming in my ears started happening and I thought to myself boy if this is the kind of pain and suffering going on I'm not going to be able to do this work and then, and, then, and then all of a sudden there was those horrible environmental disasters and so many people lost their lives and then the, the yelling stopped. And so I realized that the animal kingdom, like the ants before an earthquake, or the animals in the zoo in Zagreb, Croatia, Croatia, hours before the bombing, animals know when there are earth changes, and they were trying to let us know. But I heard the same thing you learned, which is that they have a wisdom tradition they want to pass on to us now. That is a very important aspect, because of course they're intuitive. They're, we have that primal response as well. I'd just like to interject that I'm looking out my window. I'm in a resort in Mexico, and there is a whale breaching right outside in the ocean. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Which fits right in with our discussion of exactly. them being intuitive. They go, all right, well, we're here too, so we're listening. Yeah. And they, I mean, and I think that once we get to understand that, and fortunately there are enough physicists now who can who can explain this in a way that for some people it's important to hear that literally everything is interconnected and every thought and every action and every deed changes the universe and changes the world. And not everybody wants that kind of responsibility, but that is in fact what we each have. So let's talk about, though, your first encounter physically when you came in contact with the whales and the dolphins and how that affected you. Well, my first encounter was right here in Cabo San Lucas, where I am now. I wasn't brave enough to jump off a boat into the ocean, as I now do. And I went into a place called Cabin Dolphins, where you can swim with the dolphins. And today, that thought just 
horrifies me. I want these places closed. But at the at that time, it was my first leap into the unknown. So mm-hmm. I swam. I managed to get alone with this uh, with the program because. <laughs> Uh, thanks to the universe, it poured that day in Cabo. I think three days out of a year it rains here. And nobody was there. No tourists were there. So I got to swim alone with this dolphin. And I asked it to come to me because he was with a trainer, and she kept saying, go out, go out, come back, and she'd give him the fish. And this is described in the book, in fact. And I finally said to her, please, no fish, no trained response. I would love to see if this dolphin can just respond. So I was out there in the middle of this freezing tank, and I asked him, please come. Please know that there are human beings that understand that we can communicate, interspecies communication. So he swam out to me, and I put my arms out and said, can you feel the human love? Can you feel the love pouring out of me? And he swam over my arms. This is a very large mammal. And he nested in my arms. And I proceeded to do a healing on him because he was so traumatized from being in that tank. And I actually have pictures. One or two of them, I think, are in the book. And then Mm -hmm. I have others where he just closed his eyes and fell asleep in my arms. Mm. A dolphin. That's beautiful. And so that was my first miraculous experience. And then uh, two, three years ago, I said to to myself, well, it's time to walk your talk, Patricia. And my message for humanity is get out of your fear and live life to the fullest. Make it count. And my great fear was the sharks. That's all I have left for fear is sharks. So I knew that if I were going to swim with dolphins, I had to face that fear. And in the Azor Islands, which is such a rich environment for cetacean, different species of cetaceans, I jumped off a boat and landed in the middle of a pod of dolphins. And I had epiphany after epiphany, swimming with them, being embraced by that energy. There was about 150 dolphins in the water, and they didn't swim away. They just stayed with me. So I was in the water with them for two hours that first time. And that was the most remarkable thing I think that's ever happened in my life. It's a beautiful telling. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what actually the messages are from the great whales and the dolphin beings. Currently, we're discussing her North Atlantic 2011 release. Before we leave you, messages from the great whales and the dolphin beings. So picking up there of what actually you are being told and why this is so important for us to hear. Zara, we are at a real turning point in the oceans of, the, of our world. I think more and more people really understand this now. Between the Gulf War, uh, sorry, the Gulf incident with the huge uh, spills of, we don't even, they're not even spills, the volcanic eruption of the pipelines under the Gulf water, and now the nuclear disaster of uh, Japan and how that is encircling the globe, and all manner of other abuse of the oceans. Unquestionably, it's peril time for the oceans. We either wake up and understand this or we don't. There will be no life on the planet without ocean. And so every, every urgency exists for us to wake up and decide what we're going to do to take care of our ocean. And so the cetaceans being the masters of the ocean, their first message is, when is the human race going to understand that you are the only species on this planet that um, pollutes its own environment? 
we need you to wake up and do something about the pollution that you are creating all over the planet because without your involvement, the oceans are going to die. That's the first message, and we already know that. So this is not necessarily revolutionary. More important is their message that they are weaving the sounds of the ocean. This is no haphazard situation. The calls of the whales and dolphins are still, we're still talking about what they really mean. And most marine biologists will tell us that they're mating calls, even though they admit they don't necessarily know what they mean, how they relate. But the messages that I'm receiving are that their function is to weave the sound of the oceans together, holding the ocean in balance with sound. And as woo-woo as that might sound, when you really think about it, we're learning more and more about frequency and how sound and harmony are a reflection of consciousness. So one of the great messages of the book, uh, and, and, and as you read it, I'm sure you'll agree that it's all about sound and music, is that the whales and dolphins are saying, please help us continue to do our work, which is to weave the sounds of the ocean together and hold the ocean in balance. And this is being dramatically disturbed by sonar, by fracking, by oil drilling, by every kind of invasion of the natural process that industry and military are doing to our oceans. When I began the program, I described there's a line in your book about this calculation before there were all these interruptions and interference frequencies that disrupt this harmony, a whale could sound to another whale within seven minutes across the planet through the oceans. And over the years, you don't know about the work I used to do, but I covered a lot of the um, war games and the kind of empress stuff going on inside the oceans and talking about the decibel increase and how destructive it must be to all the creatures of the water, not just whales and dolphins, though they may be the first to be able to articulate it to humans. Indeed, and we have now these five-year plans from the Navy. I've been screaming about this to anyone who will hear. The uh, Navy is has embarked upon five-year plans where they openly admit that, that they're going to be doing war games using every kind of weapon, chemicals, sonic booms, every kind of weapon, and they admit that they'll be taking out millions of cetaceans. They call it taking, in other words, killing as a byproduct of what they feel they need to be doing in these war games to supposedly protect us from whatever they're protecting us from. And the human race is, by and large, standing by and letting this happen. So my call is, when are we going to do something about this and stop this and give the cetaceans and, all like you said, all the other life forms in the ocean, the possibility, the chance to survive? We don't need to add to the equation of things that are killing off our marine animals. And and you describe in your book that these sounds are one of the very particular things that actually is driving these creatures to suicide. Well, yes, because they have such delicate uh, auric cavities. Their hearing is enormously more sensitive than ours, and these sonic booms are blowing their brains out. We have literally seen cetaceans that have had their brains blown out from the inside out, and although no one's claiming why, it's pretty obvious to those of us who are animal activists that this is directly related to sonic um, sonar. And in fact, 
uh, it happens over and over again that you get a beaching, and then we just find out that uh, there just happened to have been another military sonar test uh, hours before numbers of great whales beach themselves, or, or the dolphins as well. You know, it, it reminds me very much for years. I used to track, based on the work of uh, Dr. Gary Whiteford of New Brunswick, Canada, when they used to make underground and under-oceanic explosions public. They don't do that anymore. We were able to predict how many days out we could expect an earthquake to occur in the general area, and people thought it was, you know, intuitive and psychic, and that may play a little role, but for the most part, it was just obvious. You bang your toe and it hurts. So the, <laughs> the same thing here. And and so when you talk to these beautiful beings and when they come and and talk to you about the importance of sound, you also write that that through sound they have this ability, which we have to assume we can as well, unlock the Akashic Record of other time periods. Explain what they mean. They, as we look at the potential of understanding multidimensional reality, we know, we learn, we know that uh, everything is vibration. So as you tune in, for lack of a better term, to any certain frequency pattern, you become attuned to that pattern and you begin to to resonate with it and therefore you unlock it. And so... uh, are things in the Akashic Records stored in wavelengths? I believe they are. So when people talk about reading the Akashic Records, what is the wave? What is the vibration that they've been able to attune to so that they can lock into that, let's call it dimensional storage room and retrieve that information? And no, without question for me, the whales and dolphins have the capacity because of their immense understanding of how sound affects the actual rhythms of the ocean, it, it affects the balance of the ocean, then by, by the nature of their awareness of their great capacity to use sound to create that balance, it's understandable that they also know how to access other levels of, uh, of wisdom, other dimensions. Just look at, look, for example, a dog. Look at a dog. I mentioned my dog in the book. She knows exactly eight minutes before five or six minutes before, I'm sorry, correct myself, when my man, my husband is coming home from work, she knows exactly when that is. I could put the pasta in the pot and swear by it. She's Mm -hmm. so precise. Now, what is that? Is it because she has an acute sense of sound, acute sense of hearing? My other dog doesn't hear it. Is it because she's psychically picking it up? What is she drawing from the ethers that signals her awareness that he's 10 miles away from home, and, and she knows exactly where he is. How do you describe that? And this happens even if he's driving a different car, so we can rule out some sort of acute sense of sound uh, that she associates with his car. Well, Rupert Sheldrake she, wrote that beautiful book com- on this whole she's subject. She's attached <laughs> to him, and she can feel his vibration exactly. when he's in that vicinity. Well, it's through. I mean, I think Rupert Sheldrake's whole book on when do dogs know when their owners are returning home is a long title, which was really about morphic (laughs) resonance, is that there is this instantaneous telepathy that exists between all life. And if things are attached to one another through feeling, in this case, the emotional love the dog has for you all and you all have for your dog, that in the same way a mother and a child thousands of miles apart can communicate when there's duress or when there's great need. So I think that anybody 
anybody in our listening audience who has ever thought about a friend and then all of a sudden heard from a friend understands that somehow or other information travels faster than light and outside the bounds of time and space. Right, and I would like to suggest two things. First of all, if you can fathom it, uh, the capacity of human-to-human telepathy, that it's not that far-reaching to imagine that there can be interspecies communication. For sure. For That's the first one. And uh, certainly, oh, I forgot what my second point was. I, I uh, Well, maybe we'll come back to it, because I think you, you do a beautiful job of articulating what many people are talking about. I mean, I'm glad to say we're not alone in this conversation. There are millions of people on the planet who feel as you and I feel, and as some of our listeners feel, that we are decidedly at a time frame when humanity is going through a drastic change in its awareness of itself and in its um, opportunity both to behave properly and to think well, meaning that thought is a force as big as the sun, if not more. And if we ever really brought it all together, we could restore the planet in an instant. I, I actually believe that, though everybody thinks I'm a little weird on that one. But when, when the dolphins and the whales say to you, this is an important time period, it has also a lot to do with their perception of there are other dimensions than just the physical world in which we have existence. Yes, well, herein lies the rub. The book proposes that the whales and dolphins are actually higher consciousness beings than human beings. So this is a concept that really kind of is, is difficult for people to embrace because we have been taught and we believe that we are the ultimate exalted intelligent being on this planet, the highest form of consciousness. And the book dares propose that that's not the case, that the whales and dolphins are connected, aware of their multidimensionality, connecting with beings of their own species who reside on other levels of consciousness and other dimensions, and preparing to teach the human race, which has in many ways devolved consciously, to help us remember our mission, our purpose, and who we are. So that's a concept that's a little bit tough for people to get around, but I love the idea. Isn't it fascinating to think that at this time where humankind is so polarized that the animals can help us back into our connection with all life? I actually agree with you. I mean, I feel that that is what's taking place because there is a great wisdom tradition, and um, I've had some of my own experiences about that. I think my husband was telling me earlier when John Lilly years ago talked about the dolphins as being the superior consciousness on Earth. He certainly was not um, embraced by everybody, and that was back in 1955. You know, when he began that series of experiments. What happened with John Lilly is he got a little bit carried away and he gave some dolphins LSD Mm -hmm. because he was uh, interested. And, of course, back in those days, we didn't really understand the the real impact of LSD. It was still an experimental situation. But he gave them LSD because he was hopeful that he could completely break through. And this was poo-pooed, of course, because it was very harmful to the... That was a step he probably shouldn't have taken. Mm -hmm. So that discredited him a lot. But he was doing amazing work back then. He was a true forerunner of Mm -hmm. his time. And so when we look at how many mediums and how many intuitives and how many children now say that they're receiving teachings from the animals, whether it's the bird or it's a crocodile that they see or or any um, species, why the whale and the dolphin in, in terms of, 
trans-species communication, what is it that they are teaching that perhaps other species don't or, or aren't here to teach? I think that they are teaching us the ultimate goal, and that is, well, first of all, they're reminding us that we're star children because they have knowledge and of existence on many other levels. And if you go back to the Dogon tribes, when they described the nomos walking out of the water as amphibians, they were... Um, they looked like dolphins with legs, you know, of the do- the nomos that appeared to the, to the Dogon tribes mm-hmm. in Africa. Mm-hmm. And they described them as coming from Sirius, and they described them as explaining to the tribe the three-star system of Sirius that was unknown to scientists at that time. It was only about 40 or 50 years later that scientists really got that information. So these are, let's call them ancestors of the dolphins and the whales, and I believe, and the book describes how they have been around so many millions of years longer than we have. They have even seen us be nested and birthed as a species. And they carry the information, the DNA coding of the planet itself, as well as all of the starseed information from the many systems that they have all come to Earth from. So I believe that they're multidimensional stellar beings as we are, and they're going to be able to help us put those pieces together. I also believe that at this time, the whales and dolphins are making their consciousness known to humankind because there's a huge surge in awareness of the cetacean nation. I think this is a really vital time for them to help us remember who we are. If you've just joined us, our guest is Patricia Corey. Her book, Before We Leave You, Messages from the Great Whales and the Dolphin Beings, a North Atlantic 2011 release. You can also find more at her website, www.patriciacorey.com. So given in your title, Before We Leave You, are the whales and dolphins leaving the Earth? Many of them are, and we are seeing increased I think that I can't remember how many uh, beachings there have been in the last few weeks alone. There it was an incident in somewhere in California where a number of dolphins came onto the shore and the tourists managed to get them back in the water. And there was a discussion about this. Does this mean are we interfering with their karma? Do they really want to leave? Whatever. And their message is there's still time. We don't have to go. We need to see that you care enough. You care enough to help us survive. And this means that we need to do everything we can to help them understand, believe that the human race gets it and that we love them and that we honor them, for starters. And there must be a decrease in this sonar, abusive, abusive sonar that's back again with more of these Navy programs. Now there's a new one restarting in the Oregon area. There, this beautiful, pristine water is going to be another Navy battleground for the next five years. How long can the cetaceans handle all of this abuse? I don't know. Well, but, as, you, as you point out and other biologists, marine biologists have pointed out, is that you can see in their organs that the sound is, you describe it as disintegrating from inside out. Yes. Well, they've been found this way with their brains literally blown out. And they say they don't know what causes it. Well, it doesn't take much of a uh, rocket scientist. No. You don't have to be to understand that this is because they're, it's the sonar that's just devastating their oral cavity. 
Well, we have this in our own military use and crowd control amplification of of sound at a certain decibel that creates such irritation or such heating on the skin that people will flee. And it's been deployed, and it's been deployed recently and in warfare. So w- we know this to be true. Even those um, the great wind farms now, there's a syndrome that people are having as a result of the compression of air and the hum, and it makes them biologically sick. It doesn't get talked about much, but people can go online and find it. So the truth is, is we are water beings ourselves, like dolphins and whales. We just think of ourselves as being bony, hard filled things, exactly. but we're mostly water. So whatever a dolphin and a whale experiences, we also experience, but we don't associate ourselves as being water beings. And we don't remember that they're also mammals. They're water. They're residing in water, but they still are hot-blooded mammals. Mm-hmm. And but so if... Yes, it, they, they, they can stay or they can go. And the good news is that if, even if they do leave, they'll be working with us and for us on other levels, like some of their ancestors, if you will. But I love them. I want them to stay. I am dedicated to Gaia rediscovering, rebalancing all these energies and all these life forms, this wealth, the variety of life on Earth. This is the Garden of Eden. I agree with you entirely. Uh, Absolutely. I always say I'm a cheerleader for Paradise Now because it's really the only (laughs) archetype that we are all native to. It's in every soul. It's in every living form. That perfection is, is not an illusion and it's not foolishness eden really is is our obligation and our calling indeed and you know you look at the forces of the power at the moment on this planet they seem so intent on destroying all living things and we simply cannot let that happen and we won't when you talk to other people who first hear this and and the first response generally for people is fear and fear really prevents us from the love which is the the great healer and the great connector and and the great all what do you say to people about what they can do with their own transformation and how each person makes such a profound difference on earth well we're again we're in sync dr zoe because my big message to everyone is face your fear and get through it because it's paralyzing it stops you from living life and it stops you from protecting the earth it's easier just to close your eyes and say, it's all too much for me, I can't cope, and tune in the TV and forget what's going on in this world. And even in our circles of light and spirit, people are, are saying, I, I don't want to go there, I don't want to talk about that, let's stay in the love zone. Mm-hmm. And so we're walking a perpetual fine line between these two aspects of reality. Are we going to explore uh, the darkness, the difficulty, the disharmony, and work to improve it? Or are we going to be in a space where we believe the universe will work it out and all we have to do is lie back and and let it unfold? And there's truth in both of these aspects. But I'm an activist, and I'm calling people to do the best they can to affect change on this planet, change they want the world to be. So if that's prayer and meditation, great. If that's sending money or getting on a boat of the Sea Shepherds and going out there and doing battle, with the whale killers, whatever you believe you can do to improve the world, to improve Gaia, to improve the spirit of this planet, do it. And in so doing, you heal and celebrate your own existence. 
Absolutely. I, I mean, I've been an activist my whole life as well, and it's taken getting old enough to appreciate that there's all kinds of activism, and not everybody is comfortable taking on the status quo or standing up to something they find threatening, but everybody is capable of thought and everybody is capable of prayer. And Amiko Swami's come out with a beautiful new work called Quantum Activism, which is when humans finally appreciate the power of prayer as being the greatest force on earth, meaning our collective goodwill, our collective desire to see healing and our collective love of other, be it the tree or the dolphin or each other, um, that that itself is a vibration of healing. And so I, I would just like to say that for people in our audience who feel they can't do as much as perhaps you do, or maybe what I do, but they can do what they do wherever they are. And that even if it's not explicitly for the dolphins, it can be the way you eat and what you choose to do so that there's just less suffering. And if we alleviate right. some of the suffering going on in the animal kingdom, whether it's the animal farm, the factory farm, or what's on your table to eat, I think that we will change the balance and then receive some of the help that we we want and, and can use from other dimensions who are really waiting to see what we're going to choose to do. Exactly. And even a more practical way, if you, if you don't meditate, if you don't have the focus and concentration to send that love out, you can always send a $5 check to the Sea Shepherds or another organization that's doing the activism work. Who, these are our warriors. Let's give them our support. Mm -hmm. They need money because one of the things about the spiritual groups is that we often are, uh, we don't have the kind of funding that the power the military has. So let us at least give up a cappuccino a week and send some money to these warriors who are dangling off ships and out there doing our work for us. I feel very strongly about this. When you look at your own life and and the kinds of information that you have access to and the understanding, I think one of the beautiful places you arrived at and others arrive at is that there's always everywhere, as my late teacher Terry Ross used to say, and there's always every when, and we are always more than just a physical being. So the message you're receiving are really messages about who we are already. Indeed. The excitement that I feel at the knowledge that we are multidimensional beings and that it's most likely we are going to live through an utterly remarkable shift in consciousness, uh, described in my books as a sh an actual ascension of the planet, is just too exciting. We're here. There is trauma. There's difficulty. But we're here. And part of the reason we're here is to work on making that better, making it a, a, a more beautiful place to be now. We're only yes. transiting here. We're immortal beings. But by cracky, <laughs> while I'm here, I want to do the, the most I can to heal and celebrate all the life that I encounter in this world. Amen to that. And in terms of trans-species telepathy, you know, I've, I've told people that that's the work that I do, but I don't talk about it often publicly. And the interesting thing I have found is that all the animals communicate among themselves as well. And, and people go, I used to think when I was a child, you had to understand what the dog bark meant and you had to understand what the bird song meant. But when you finally get to this ability of telepathy, all consciousness is talking 
and the mind translates it into the capacity of that particular mind. So when a dog talks to me, I, I tell the story in English. And when a bird talks to me, I tell the story in English. But it's not my story, it's their story. I think also that when you become an, an empath and you let go of the need to explain it in the left brain terms, mm-hmm. what are the words that are being spoken, you tune into the energy of this being and it, it appeals to you, it, it, it speaks to your soul. That's what you were able to translate into language. You know, recently there was a picture of a torador in Spain. I don't know if you've seen this picture. No. He was in the middle of, of a... Um, of a bullfight? Of a bull a kill? A bullfight. Really, And a bull the bull kill. has like eight of these horrific knives mm. in its uh, mm. back. And he sits down on the edge of the ring and he has an epiphany. He starts mm-hmm. to break down and crying. And this poor bull comes over to him with these heavy weights on his back mm. and stands there and looks at him. Somebody captured this photo. And this bull is, you don't even have to be there to hear the bull saying, why must you torture me? Mm-hmm. I'm a living being like you. What are you doing? The face, the expression, the body language of this bull, it's all there. Mm-hmm. You can hear it speaking from the photo. Mm-hmm. And this trained killer sits down knowing the bull could ram him and kill him after he's tortured him for so many hours and has given up forever the bullfight. And this is what I mean about the animals are beginning to teach us how to be human. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a beautiful story of some elephants in Africa where one of their keepers uh, uh, in a sanctuary passed away. And elephants from all around the area came outside the house and waited knowing that he had passed on. And there was no way for them to know other than through telepathic communication among themselves. It's not like they put out wow. a newspaper and ran it by Jeep all over the country. But so we see these we see evidence of it all the time, and more and more the trans-species collaboration between species being friends is, is being noticed. It's always been going on, but we didn't notice. That's right. And now the question rises, let's move beyond the wondering about it. Is it possible? Is it true? And let's ask ourselves, what are they trying to tell us? What are they telling us about themselves? What are they telling us about Gaia? And what are they telling us about the human race? Can these be uh, the new teachers for the Earth? I really do believe they are. When I get into this work, then I start saying, well, I want to see all the zoos closed and all the aquariums and all the torturous animal entertainment palaces. That That's only yeah. for humans. It does nothing good for the animals. And the only thing I've been told from one species was that, well, if it's to preserve us, then you can do that, but then set us free. Yes, in the book they will say, how would you feel if an alien species took your young, threw them into these obscene cages, and had them come out and dance for the others, for entertainment for their species? Would you feel so good about aquarium tanks and zoos then? We have, a, we, ha- we have a journey together on Earth, and I think the beautiful thing, Patricia, about your work and others like yourself is, is that you, with great love and compassion and passion, stand up before others and say, you know, awaken. Here we are together, and it's a story of love, and that's really what we're here to manifest. Thank you. That's what I'm here to do. Well, I think you've done a beautiful job, and, um, you know, when I first... When we first received your book, it was the result of a listener, and I want to thank Dipana 
Morgan for sending it to us. And when I first went through it, I went, well, this is too sad. <laughs> and, then <I> started, <laughs> yes. and then I started getting my own communication and then I understood. All right. Okay. This is what we're all like tapping into is the animals are talking and they're talking loudly, I have to say. Thank God yeah, for I, that. I, I, I laugh at you saying that it's too sad because it does start out rather very painfully. And in fact, I cried a lot. Mm-hmm. in that process of bringing it through. But mm-hmm. as with all my other books, it then rises and brings in higher information mm-hmm. and leaves you pondering the question of um, the, the wonder of their multidimensionality and pondering multidimensional existence. So it's not sad the whole way through. I'm sure you 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 picked that up as you went Yes, through. I did. But I, I want to thank you for bringing it to everybody and to our listening audience again you can follow up after the show with patricia corey's work at that name patricia corey c-o-r-i.com also at syrian s-i-r-i-a-n revelations.net and it's a north atlantic book so at northatlanticbooks.com and if you can't remember that go to 2121stcenturyradio.com 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.